All right. So <clears throat> we're actually going to have an intro this time, Steve. Yep. So welcome to the intervention where every other week, my co-host Steve, originally of England and I, an American, exchange stories from British and American imperial history and examine them together. I'm Nick, and I'll be your main host this week as we continue to look at uh, the American Imperial War in the Philippines. So, as we'll continue to caveat every week, uh, neither of us are trained historians. We're just a couple of white dudes who are trying to understand the nature of imperialism more and do our part to intervene on dismissive histories that often center Anglo-American perspectives while ignoring the economic, social, and um, societal impacts of imperialism in the global south and other non-Western nations. So today's intervention is a continuation of our examination of the Spanish-American War in the Philippines and the subsequent war between the Filipinos and the Americans, um, and ultimately resulting in the colonization of the islands, um, and that's what we'll get to today. Um, all right, so I wanted to start this one by acknowledging and correcting a few things that came up last time. So like I just went back and like listened to the first episode. So one thing that you brought up last time was, um, you know, it seemed like America's development economically was like somewhat accelerated relative to the European powers. Mm -hmm. And I think like we touched on it and like I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that there was no like feudal base. You know what I mean? It kind of started growing out of capitalism. But I also think I pulled some punches that I'm just not going to pull anymore, like with a lot of this stuff. So, I mean, one of the key linchpins to the accelerated development of capitalism in America was chattel slavery, like full yeah. fucking stop. You know what I mean? So like, you know, obviously like the industrialists in the North, like were exploiting workers and, you know, the manufacturing sectors and things like that. But like nothing can compare to like the complete and total exploitation of owning another human being as personal property for the purpose of labor. So I just think that that's like a, you know, a key aspect of that development um and like we touched on this but another key was you know basically genociding native americans which facilitated that con continental expansion and development across the mainland u.s so like ultimately like if the purpose of the podcast is try to you know help people and ourselves kind of come to grips with the reality of like u.s and british history i don't think that you know we need to apologize for acknowledging that thing on its face you know um, I also think I pulled some punches on Duterte, who's essentially a, fasc a fascist and is despised by like the Filipino left. So, yeah. <laughs> it's, again, like you know, you know slavery as well. It's not just you, know, you, know, you can look at the prison complex, you know, now, yeah, which is basically discontinued slavery, continued cheap labor mm -hmm. that America benefits from. No, that's a good point. And like side note, but there's a good book that um, the New Jim Crow by uh, Michelle Alexander, which kind of traces like the direct lineage of, you know, chattel slavery to, you know, Jim Crow laws, um, and then the prison industrial complex, and how it's still like is basically built upon like the labor, the exploited labor of, you know, black people in America. So it's a good one. Um, so anyway, uh, I also wanted to acknowledge that Filipino source that I mentioned in the first episode. Um, so check out uh, Philippine Society and Revolution by Amado Guerrero. Um, it's really easily accessible. I used it pretty extensively in my notes here. Um, and I'll post a link to it because I think it's just available online. But I wanted to acknowledge that because I forgot who, <laughs> when I mentioned it last time, I forgot who it was. Um, so anyway. All right. So now that kind of that's out of the way, uh, we'll pick back up. So just as a quick reminder, when we left off last time, um, General Elwell Otis, who was one of the, you know, the men on the ground leading the army, had ordered American troops to fire on Filipino soldiers in territory they had occupied around Manila under the authority of President McKinley's proclamation of benevolent assimilation. 
Emilio Aguinaldo, who again was essentially like the face of the Philippine Filipino independence movement, had taken the oath of office as the new president of an independent Filipino government. And that happened at the end of January 1899. But, you know, days later on February 4th, um, war full scale broke out. 3,000 Filipinos lay dead in the first outright battle, and um, they were quickly forced to retreat back from Manila, and this coincided with an, a mass exodus of civilians from the capital city as well. So things got bad pretty quick, right? And ultimately, like on paper, the war that was erupting was pitting relatively like equal forces in terms of numbers, you know what I mean, if you just looked at it on paper, but the Filipinos, as we said last time, they relied during, you know, the, Sp- the liberation from Spain, they relied pretty extensively on American arms, which obviously they don't have access to that anymore, right? So they were facing a pretty huge disparity in terms of arms and ammunition. And it wasn't long before the Filipinos, in some instances, were fighting with like bows and arrows and melting down scrap metal to make bullets. Um, and the key, to, the key to that, like in the inability to get more um, arms and ammunition, because again, like there's 7,000 islands, but this was all centered upon, you know, Luzon and it did, it will get into this later and it does break it. It does hit other islands, but like, this is kind of the epicenter of the struggle between the Filipinos and the Americans. But you know, that blockade, was still in place in Manila Bay. So they still couldn't, they couldn't get, they couldn't get anything from, you know, any other portions of the island either. Um, on Luzon at least. Um, so ultimately like the Filipinos did attempt to fight semi-conventionally for some time, but by late 1899, the war was effectively being waged as a guerrilla war. And it's just like, you know, the superiority, superiority in arms just, you know, made itself more and more apparent every day. Right. Um, so anyway, um, after the initial massacre that marked the outbreak of the war, um, just to turn our heads to the home front for a second, the uh, the media war machine um, starts, you know, cranking and begins like, you know, manufacturing consent for ultimately the wrath that was unleashed upon the Filipinos. And I want to read just a few headlines that announce the outbreak of hostilities. So from the Salt Lake Herald, and this is important because there was a Utah division on the front lines. They were one of the groups that opened fire under the orders of Otis um, outside Manila initially. Here's the uh, here's the headline quote: Aguinaldo's horde repulsed with great slaughter. Second one, and these are both from uh, the San Francisco Call. Quote: Aguinaldo declares war on America, and at last Aguinaldo shows his teeth. And the last one I've got here was from uh, the St. Paul Globe. Quote: Rebels at Manila repulsed, driven from their trenches and routed by the boys who wore the blue of Uncle Sam. So, I mean, I don't know, like if we go back last time, like there's a couple of things to get into here, but like the, you know, basically holding Aguinaldo responsible for declaring war on America is very insane, given yeah. what we learned about last right. time and the betrayal that went into that. Um, but, and again, I think that's just a snapshot and I'm sure there's some more principled takes buried in the archives. But like, my point is, I just don't think we should be surprised at all by that tone that the media is taking. Right. Um, but I do think a couple of things in particular are worth pointing out. And I want to get your thoughts on this. Um, first and most, obviously, kind of like we said, this is all being framed as a response to aggression by Filipinos, not the Americans. And of course, ignoring all the deception and betrayal that we talked about last time. Um, second of all, there's that use of the word horde, which I found like really interesting. And I think that's a phrase that's got, you know, deep roots in this concept of Orientalism, which is a pretty mm-hmm. complex concept. But like for now, let's just describe it as an outlook of the West, which dehumanizes and holds inferior the peoples of Asia, Africa, and I would think to some extent, Eastern Europe. 
you know. Um, so like you read history and you always come across terms like, you know, the Mongol hordes or like the Russian hordes. But like you never hear it used to describe Americans or Western Europeans with the exception maybe of the Nazis. You know what I mean? Like I've heard Hitler's hordes, but you never yeah. hear like the hordes of America, at least, you know, when you're something like that. So I, I just kind of, does I think that make sense? Yeah. And I think, you know, that book I'm reading now, who, which is insane, but we'll get into that more next time. Um, yeah. I mean, he uses words like that all the time right. to describe, you know, the, the people that, that, that Britain imperialized imperialized over the years he yeah. uses words like that and just other words that I, I think you're right have pretty negative connotations when you really like dig into them right because like ultimately like you're not thinking of like a group of humans like no. if, the, if the word horde is used you're not thinking of a group of humans fighting for their independence you're thinking about you know a horde of you know barbarians and things yeah. like that so yeah all right so um but like again here we have it applied particularly to a southeast asian people right in the process of being colonized again i think to manufacture consent you know or invent reality as michael parenti puts it um and this is done again purposely to like as we're talking about to detach the humanity from of the filipino freedom fighters from like the average american's consciousness in my opinion um so it's also worth mentioning and we touched on this in the first episode the types of people who own or run you know the large media outlets um as they are today you know the large newspapers and medias um you know organizations and things like that were often run by the capitalist class or at least people who licked the boots of the capitalists right <laughs> so it's literally in like the material interest of these of these people to manufacture that consent for, you know, imperial economic expansion. Right. So I just think it's worth noting that, you know, why these headlines are getting written and things like that from an economic perspective. Yeah. And that continues throughout history. Right. With newspapers. I remember seeing like after we, uh, after we finally fucking left Afghanistan, there was an article in CNN and it was like the Taliban now sits on, you know, a trillion dollars worth of mineral resources. What are we going to do about it? It's like a, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> Are you serious right now? Yeah. Yeah, there was, yeah, a lot of, in, in my industry, which, uh, there was a lot of talk about that stuff. <clears throat> yeah. The, all the, all the resources that were left behind. Well, yeah. It's not ours to, <laughs> it's not ours <laughs> to take it. <anyways>, right. So. <laughs> oh man. Anyway, so now the, uh, media machine is humming at home. We'll turn back to the uh, Philippines. I just kind of wanted <laughs> to set that context because I think it's important. So as the Filipinos again, decentralized their forces and adopted, you know, guerrilla tactics, the U S armed forces faced the difficult task and the achievement of ultimate subjugation of the now insurgent Filipino army. One intelligence officer described the U.S. as a, quote, blind giant facing terrain, cities, and a people it knew little about and had no data on at all, right? So the U.S. embarked upon a, multi embarked upon a multi-pronged strategy for pacification and deployed tactics ranging from, quote, winning hearts and minds through infrastructure programs to the much more sinister waterboarding and concentration camps. So a very, you know, smorgasbord of, uh, of different tactics, right? Yeah, and things you, you still see applied to every yeah conflict that's that's my next conflict. note that's yeah. my next note it's like not dissimilar to say like iraq but i think in the case of the philippines we actually did build some infrastructure and didn't just privatize the rebuild and pay a bunch of contractors to do nothing so they actually got something done and i'm not saying that that's necessarily a good thing because the filipinos could have done that themselves but anyway there there was an you know a lighter 
side ultimately. And again, it's not apologizing for it, but it did, you know, something did happen. So again, to start with that kind of lighter side, if such a thing actually exists in terms of colonialism, um, the, U- the U.S., at least in words and partially in deeds, viewed cooperation with the Filipinos as a key to suppressing the insurrection at the start. So they embarked upon programs to build roads and other pieces of infrastructure like sanitation systems, and they also worked to set up local government councils with the Filipinos appointed to key positions. Of course, all this was under the, quote, benevolent tutorship of the Americans in the art of self-government as they framed it. So William Howard Taft, you know, who was future president, he was um, governor general of the Philippines. And he summed up the commonly held disdainful view of the ability of the Filipinos to learn how to, quote, self-govern, stating it would take, quote, our little brown brothers 50 or 100 years to develop anything resembling the Anglo-Saxon political principles and skills, end quote. An AP journalist, Charles Ballantine, described the Filipinos as a, quote, race more dishonest than any known race on the face of the earth, quote. So, you know. It's amazing how much the whole self-government comes up, like, as you go through all these different things. Um, it's, it's just always a justification. We're bringing, you know, Western liberal values or the ability to govern, and we're teaching these whoever to how to govern and it it comes up in like everything you read about the british as well yeah it's but like, it, so these countries couldn't exist without us it's right yeah pretty crazy thank god for us right yeah unbelievable so again that's the common attitude taken here and to your point you know everywhere else in terms of what it takes to quote unquote unlighten the filipinos right but despite this the americans were able to you know make some headway on this front you know what i mean but i think the key to this is again if we look at like class and ethnic divisions within, you know, Filipino society itself, right? So, and I'm going to pull from Amado Guerrero, um, because I think he's probably got a better perspective than I ever could have on this, but quote, he says, in every town occupied by the U.S. imperialist troops, puppet municipal elections were held and dominated by the old Principalia. So the people who, you know, probably benefited in some way Mm -hmm. from, you know, Spanish colonialism, right? Because there was a class of people that did. So um, he continues, these puppet elections excluded the masses who could not comply with the property and literacy requirements. These sham elections were used mainly to break off the Principalia from the revolution and to attract its members into becoming running dogs in the same way that the Spanish colonialists had done. Right. So, again, they're taking a specific class of people to run these, you know, self-governing local councils. Yeah. Right. So basically, the U.S. was able to tear away some of the illustrados who we mentioned last time to run the society by ensuring the maintenance of their class position. Additionally, because the revolution was dominated by a, a liberal ideology after the execution of Bonifacio, who we talked about last time, who was more of like the uh, the working class perspective, um, and it was largely headed largely by um, the Catholic Tagalog, who we mentioned was the largest, you know, kind of cultural linguistic group last time. Um, that's where kind of most of the leadership was coming from, inclusive of Aguinaldo, right? Um, But ultimately, because of this, because of, I think, the class divisions and some of like the, you know, I think there was probably a lack of sympathy towards some, you know, certain struggles that different ethnic groups would have had within the islands. uh, I think the insurgents found it increasingly difficult to recruit, you know, minorities to the cause and the broader working masses who I think were beginning to make the calculation that their life under American rule might not be so different from what it might be under, you know, the republicanism offered by Aguinaldo and the insurgents. So ultimately, like many decided that that vision for the Philippines wasn't worth their life, you know? 
furthermore, the U.S. was able to actually recruit from these groups in um, their more violent suppression efforts, which we'll get into later. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, all that said, there was still a good level of support for the independence movement, particularly around Luzon and, you know, the, the surrounding islands. Um, and the generals actually initially underestimated the Filipinos' willingness to fight and resist colonization. Now, many of these guys had fought various conflicts with the Native Americans, and eventually they came to reason that the only real way to deal with the insubordination was extreme violence and terror, as you know they had done in the West, uh, in the in the continental West. But there was some, you know, there were also some insidious nuance to this violence. So let's go ahead and turn to those aspects of the suppression strategy. And we should really always say this, but I think it's probably safe to assume that there should be some kind of content warning about, you know, depressing and violent content. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but so as we said, the U.S. again was this blind giant in unfamiliar territory. And now they were facing hostile guerrillas, you know, who knew this is where they're from. They know, you know, the, uh, the jungles and everything like that. And they know the communities. They know the villages. And, you know, they had adapted to utilizing, you know, essentially espionage and uh, coded messaging to communicate. And, you know, this obviously frustrated the Americans' efforts to kind of pacify the movement ultimately. In response to this, the first field intelligence unit in the history of the army was established, the Division of Military Information, or the DMI, which would be headed up by Ralph Van Diemen in 1901. Van Diemen is now known as the father of U.S. military intelligence. So now I know who to find when I'm in hell looking for the bastard responsible for the CIA. It's this guy, right? So ultimately, the DMI would be responsible for gathering, gathering the information that would lead to the rooting out of the leaders and dissidents and identifying the bases of the guerrilla fighters. I think this is important here. So working in tandem with the DMI was the Philippine police force and constabulary, which was established in 1901 by Governor General and future President William Howard Taft. And this was really centered in Manila. So the constabulary was led by 325 officers, most of which were Americans, but the main body of the force was 4,700 Filipino constables. Um, presumably, you know, as we kind of talked about, disaffected by the independence movement and or bribed by the Americans. Um, so with the constabulary established, the U.S. was essentially able to set up a surveillance state, implementing state-of-the-art crime control technologies, such as a centralized phone network, photo ID, and fingerprinting. And soon the DMI and this police force had a record of about 70% of the population of Manila, you know, which again was like the biggest city. Um, and, you know, this ultimately would prove invaluable to their suppression of the insurgency, which was, of course, centered on Luzon. So it's a very, you know, tactical effort to understand this situation and it's utilizing you know again basically a client force made up of locals who who know who know the islands and things like that but then they're you know again implementing the surveillance state utilizing technology so again this is another one you know we talked about the media but like i think this is another very clear through line to you know again surveillance states that are set up abroad and at home mm -hmm. in terms of intelligence and how it's utilized um <clears throat> So uh, anyway, so now that they've got this police force set up and, you know, this information gathering techniques, the army and the DMI set, set about casting a figurative and literal web of communication line around the guerrilla networks, right? So as this infrastructure was being put into place and the dossiers were compiled on individuals within the resistance, um, General Arthur MacArthur, the father of Douglas MacArthur, came onto the scene um, as General Otis's replacement, right? And um, Otis was actually criticized, you know, obviously we talked about, you know, he gave kind of the order, but he was actually criticized by some people in the army for kind of leaning too hard into the winning hearts and minds thing. 
So MacArthur's not going to be criticized for that. Um, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so he, he dispenses entirely with the uh, benevolent aspect of benevolent assimilation, um, and he unleashes the army upon civilian populations, which were pegged as sympathetic to the insurrection. And I'm speculating here, but I'm assuming that you know, these targeted populations were ultimately targeted through you know, Van Diemen and the DMI. So, in any case, um, the Filipinos began to feel the true wrath of the uh, nascent empire. Women and children were slaughtered, villages were razed to the ground, women were raped, and even reconcentration camps were established in some areas to presumably weed out and identify revolutionaries. On top of this, we have evidence of the use of the uh, water cure to torture information out of the Filipinos. Now, again, the water cure is essentially the grandfather of waterboarding. It's the same thing, but it's, you know, this... It's essentially, you know, if you don't know what it is, water is forced down the throat of the uh, tortured individual to simulate drowning. And uh, here's an account from the uh, Philadelphia Ledger um, in that time period. Quote, the, uh, the present war is no bloodless fake opera booth engagement. Our men have been relentless, have killed to exterminate men, women, children, prisoners and captives, active insurgents and suspected people. Lads of ten and up, an idea prevailing that the Filipino as such was little better than a dog a noisome reptile in some instance whose best disposition was the rubbish heap. Our soldiers have pumped salt water into men to make them talk, have taken prisoner people who held up their hands and peacefully surrendered, and an hour later, without an atom of evidence to show that they were even insurrectos, stood them on a bridge and shot them down one by one to drop into the water below and float down as an example to who found their, you know, bullet-ridden corpses. So, I mean, that's, that's you know, a newspaper at home writing about that yeah it's it's kind of crazy because i i think that there always has to be some level of cooperation with i'm not i don't mean an entire population but there's always individuals whether it be the philippines or india or africa you know african countries wherever that have to cooperate for your empire to be successful Mm-hmm. And I think it's a combination of people probably that are scared and people that um, just see an advantage for themselves. Yeah. If they can, if they cooperate, then it'll benefit. And if you look at, you know, I'm reading some things about India now, and I think some Indians that went on, you know, some of the ruling parties that went on after independence were, it got a foot up because they were cooperating with the British. But I mean, if you're like just so brutal that, you just turn everybody against you. I, I don't see how that is a successful strategy. I mean, obviously, the the, the, the British picked and choose when they were going to do that as well, mm-hmm. like Amrit Star and, and a few other, and they were brutal. Yeah. Um, but I think they tried to balance it. I mean, I feel like, you know, this, like you said, the previous guy wanted to win hearts and minds. I, I, I just feel like there has to be, I mean, obviously we don't want imperialism, but for it to be successful, there has to be some aspect of that. You can't just be like, I'm going to fuck everybody up. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, it started that way, um, and then I think as, yeah, I, as I the frustration you, grew, because yeah. I, I mean that comes across in some of the accounts is that like basically like the the soldiers and shit were just getting frustrated, yeah. you know, fighting, you know, fighting in the Philippines. It's like, well, you know, we shouldn't be there, obviously, but like that ultimately boiled over, I think, into basically outbursts of violence. And I think that, that's something else <laughs> I'm reading more about, especially you know, with regards to Britain towards the end of the like. Second World War, when empire was starting to kind of crumble. Mm-hmm. If you, people, the British didn't want to be in a lot of these countries. Right. They needed, um, you know, local 
cooperators or whatever mm-hmm. to basically enforce the law for them. Yeah. Because they couldn't, you know, especially during the wars, they couldn't have a huge force mm-hmm. in India and in, in, in Kenya or in Botswana or in South Africa. So, you know, in a lot of cases, you do have these, these forces of indigenous peoples kind of, you know, in, enforcing some of the British rule. And I think you, you, you get that through a little bit of, um, you know, hearts and minds, but also I, I assume to a large extent it is intimidation and fear. It yeah. just makes these people work for you. I think so. And I think, again, like that's where, you know, obviously we don't want to get, we don't want to comment too much on stuff we don't know about in terms mm-hmm. of like, you know, the different, you know, in, indigenous groups and cultural kind of conflicts that may be going on um, within a country that, you know, can can be taken advantage of by someone like right. America. But like, I also think it helps to have that like kind of class analysis because I think you can you can have that in terms of like look who was you know with Iraq or someone something like that like I can't remember the guy's name but who the the guy that essentially fed all the information about you know Saddam the the false information you know about what was going on in Iraq that was ultimately used by like Colin Powell to justify like the speech mm-hmm. to the UN and stuff like that but he was a descendant of like the Iraqi monarchy you yeah. know what I mean like so he, you know, he's happy to have a client state and like everything that sets up. And I think this is eventually we're going to get into this a little bit more in terms of like what neo-colonialism is. And I think a lot of that has to do with, again, like puppet rulers and puppet states and stuff like that, usually right wing that are, you know, ultimately set up to kind of make sure that the material interests of the imperializer is maintained. You know what I mean? And, you know, just, and also that involves, you know, if it's not British, or American violence, it's, you know, the client state's violence upon its own people to make sure that that stays in place. And we'll get into a lot of that, I think. But to your point, I think it really takes off after, you know, the 1950s when people, you know, it's it's also realized to be, it's a cheaper option because you don't have to have like a standing army in, you know, or like an occupying force. Not that America still has 800 fucking military bases around the world and stuff like that, but they don't have like these huge forces to maintain that you know that presence and that domination you know so it's an important aspect of it that's going to continue to keep coming up and i think this is this is what's so interesting because of the time period with this like especially with america with the overseas imperialism like you know again with the media the the dmi and you know we can we'll get into it a little bit more but there's a lot of like you know basically seeds that are planted in terms of what it what the American empire grows into in the Philippines here, you know? Um, so anyway, so we read that quote from the, uh, Philadelphia ledger. Um, and again, as all this extreme violence is going on is again, the, uh, you know, the army's getting frustrated and wants kind of the war to end. Aguinaldo himself was captured by American troops with the aid of Filipino mercenaries in March, 1901. And this kind of <clears throat> signals like the beginning of the end ultimately. Um, and he ultimately, reluctantly pledged allegiance to the U.S. and called for an end to the hostilities. And while some of his forces followed the will of their defeated leader, the resistance continued on in many places throughout the islands. Later that year in September, a Filipino force surprised and slaughtered 50 American troops at a fort on the island of Samar, which is situated just south of Luzon. The response was predictably harsh, with General Hell-Roaring Jake Smith, under the command of Adna Chaffee, who ultimately came in to replace MacArthur, ordering his troops to turn the island into, quote, a howling wilderness and to kill every male Filipino over 10. Just to the north, General J. Franklin Bell was leading the suppression efforts on the southern tip of Luzon. 
Again here, a policy of scorched earth was implemented. Entire villages were destroyed and the army confiscated food sources while rounding up the citizens of the area around Batangas, which is a city in that region, um, and forced them into reconcentration camps. Disease and hunger were rampant in the camps and the region saw the loss of 11,000 Filipino lives thanks to Bell's efforts um, from late 1901 through 1902 in the region. And that's just a sampling of like the true nature of the assimilation. But, you know, I, I read that quote, but like these are bona fide in instances of, you know, what occurred that would have led someone to write that in, you know, the Philadelphia ledger, right? Um, <clears throat> so again, again, that's just a small snippet. Um, but this was characteristic of the buildup to President Teddy Roosevelt's ultimately declaring victory in the Philippines on July 4th, 1902. Just a quick side note that uh, Roosevelt had come to the presidency following the assassination of William McKinley by Polish anarchist Leon Zolgaz. I think that's correct. Interestingly, Zolgaz shot the president on the fairgrounds of the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York, which was housing the Filipino display that we mentioned in part one. You know what I mean? Um, so anyway, the fact that... Uh, this was conducted by a foreign-born anarchist, led predictably to general crackdowns on socialists and uh, immigration in general at the time. But just an interesting little side note. Um, so anyway, Roosevelt assumes the presidency because he was McKinley's VP and declares victory in the Philippines. And I'm guessing here, but I have to think that you know him choosing July 4th you know, was done for a reason. <clears throat> Ultimately, the uh, Filipino-American war cost the lives of 250,000 Filipinos at the very conservative end, with some estimates putting the figure at more like 600,000. With an estimated population at the time of 7 million, um, that means that somewhere between 3.5% and 8.5% of the entire population of the islands was lost. And I, I really don't know what to call it, but genocidal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's crazy. So put this into contrast with 4,000 Americans dead and 3,000 wounded. And again, I don't want to like trivialize anybody dying, but you know, as, as you know, the, the hordes of Aguinaldo and, you know, the boys in blue doing their job over there, almost, you know, up to 600,000 dead. So officially the war was over in 1902, but pockets of resistance actually persisted until 1916. And, you know, I could get into it. We could talk about all like the different suppressions of like, you know, different regional insurrections, but it just gets sad at some point. You know what I mean? Like, you know, <laughs> like, um, this is going to be a continually depressing podcast. Yeah. Just like, oh. Yeah. No, I mean, sometimes I almost find myself in tears, like reading about some of this stuff, like not even joking. Um, but anyway, to change gears here for a minute, um, I, and I, I mentioned something about, you know, American soldiers dying. And uh, I think we should state explicitly that I don't want to alienate like decent people who are or were members of, um, you know, the armed forces here. Like I know some folks who I have a lot of respect for that have been part of the armed forces. Um, so I think it's just important for us to recognize that we're critiquing systems of power. You know what I mean? Less less individuals and, you know, I Agreed. the choices that go into that. You know, oftentimes, you know, people that make that choice to do this, it's driven from like a material need of getting an education or, you know, getting out of a situation and stuff like that. So, you know, I, it's tough. It's, it's, but it's a war machine over here. And that's my critique is that system of power and certain individuals who run that shit. I think there's shit. a lot of people in the U.S. that don't, you know, the military can be seen as the only option. Mm-hmm to get out and see the world or to yeah, get an education, just get out of bad situations, you know? And I think, yeah, like you said, there's a lot of, I would assume the majority of, they're just regular people. Yeah. It's the systems that 
are fucked up. And it's another place where, you know, if you apply a class analysis in terms of, you know, why people are doing it, where they come from, you know, then it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it was interesting. Part of this, I didn't actually have anything written up because I wasn't sure where to fit it in. But I think this is a good place to talk about it. Um, you know, we talked about like kind of like the racism that the, uh, you know, the Americans displayed against the Filipinos. Um, they basically called them the N word, you know, mm-hmm. but there was also, you know, black Americans fighting, you know, in the armed forces. Obviously, it was segregated still at that time. And um, the uh, Filipinos would actually drop like propaganda leaflets be like why are you fighting for them look how they treat us they still treat you this way there's actually instances of black americans um defecting over to fight with the filipinos because they're like well you know they're they're not wrong you know that they're, they're we still get called n-word and treated this way you know what i mean so it was kind of interesting um but anyway yeah so uh like I said, it, we're critiquing systems and power structures of imperialism, and the imperial war machine consumes working-class people both domestically and internationally, right? Um, so in any case, I think it's also important to discuss anti-war and anti-imperialist efforts on the home front. So despite the efforts of the media and censorship of um, reporters by the army on the ground, um, word of the atrocities, as we've shown, inevitably got back to the populace, largely through the efforts of anti-imperialists to publish eyewitness accounts from soldiers who had returned from the war. A Republican senator from Massachusetts named George Hoare ultimately pressured the Senate into conducting investigations into war crimes committed in the Philippines in March and April of 1902. In a scathing indictment of the imperialists, Hoare called out the warmongers in Washington. Quote, you have devastated provinces. You have slain uncounted thousands of peoples you desire to benefit. You have established reconcentration camps. You make the American flag in the eyes of a numerous people the emblem of sacrilege in Christian churches and of the burning of human dwellings and of the horror of water torture. The investigative Senate committee was chaired by Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, who himself was supportive of imperial policy. So obviously, like, this isn't going to go very far. Um, so, and the investigation was little more than a performative exercise, ultimately resulting in finger-wagging in the form of a few fines for individuals and a reprimand via court-martial for uh, Hell Roaring Jake, who was, again, the guy, Tamar, who ordered every boy over the age of 10 to be killed. They didn't kill every boy over the age of 10, but just to put that out there, it's like he got uh, he got a reprimand, right? And uh, Roosevelt condemned the in- investigation entirely, calling the critics of the army basically weak men who, quote, walk delicately and live in the soft places of the earth as you criticize the, quote, strong men who bring light of civilization into the world's dark places. <laughs> I don't know, man. I used to love Teddy, like, before I got into this stuff. Teddy's not great. I, I think we're going to find that every... Yeah. There's no good president. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even, like, Jimmy Carter, not. Like, yeah, he's it, probably the best of them all, but in, in some sense. But, yeah, he still is, did some pretty terrible shit. I mean, if you get into, like, um, his... Uh, basically, I can't remember what his was, but um, Dignu Brzezinski... You know, cold warrior, anti-communist. Mm-hmm. Who, uh, you know, we'll we'll get into that kind of stuff as well. But uh, even that guy, <laughs> even Carter, didn't wasn't a good guy. At the end of the day, um, so um, again, so while the resistance was there, it wasn't nearly enough to overcome the uh, siren song of imperialism. And the Philippines were officially colonized by the Americans. Uh, by the Americans. As uh, Amado Guerrero, and I'm going to quote him again, puts it, quote, U.S. imperialism had been interested in the Philippines as a source of raw materials, a market for its surplus product, and a field of investment for its surplus capital. Moreover, it needed the Philippines as a strategic foothold for carrying out its expansionist drive to convert the Pacific Ocean into an American lake. 
and to increase its share of loot in the despoliation of China and Asia in general, end quote. He also notes the explosion in material expropriation of sugar, coconut, timber, and mineral ores, the establishment of rope factories, coconut oil refineries, and not the abolition, but the expansion, just in a different form, of the hacienda system, which again were those feudal Spanish estates. So in the end, the U.S. brought its version of civilization to the Philippines by force. Instead of feudal exploitation, they would have capitalist exploitation under the watchful eye of Uncle Sam. Of course, industrialization and development occurred, but it was to the disproportionate benefit of U.S. imperialism and the upper echelons of society. And that's the true face of imperialism, right? Agree. Yeah, that's the same everywhere. Right. So the Philippines remained officially a colony of the U.S. until 1946, but even after has almost always been ruled by governments friendly to the U.S. And again, we're going to get into this concept of what a neo-colony is, and I think that's important. Um, but I don't want to get into it here. Um, but the period in between is for another time. So for now, I'll leave it off with a quote from Mark Twain, who is probably one of our most famous and witty anti-imperialists. Quote, I left these shores at Vancouver a red-hot imperialist. I wanted the American eagle to go screaming into the Pacific. It seemed tiresome and tame for it to content itself with the Rockies. Why not spread its wings over the Philippines, I asked myself. And I thought it would be a real good thing to do. I said to myself, here are people who have suffered for three centuries. We can make them as free as ourselves, give them a government and country of their own, put a miniature of the American Constitution afloat in the Pacific, start a brand new republic to take its place among the free nations of the world. It seemed to me a great task to which we had addressed ourselves. But I have thought some more since then, and I have read carefully the Treaty of Paris, and I have seen what we do not... I've seen that we do not intend to free, but to subjugate the people of the Philippines. We have gone there to conquer, not to redeem. It should, it seems to me, be our pleasure and duty to make those people free and let them deal with their own domestic questions in their own way. And so I am an anti-imperialist. I'm opposed to having the eagle put its talons on any other land. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Twain's pretty cool. So I don't know, man. So again, like I wanted to do this one um, just because I think it's, you know, it sets the stage for a lot of what comes, you know, in terms of I think it's really interesting, the uh, the DMI and kind of like the origins of military intelligence and ultimately led to, you know, like the CIA and, you know, how that kind of sprung up, um, you know, and also just again, I think Twain touches on it as, as did Guerrero, but just the importance of you know, establishing a colony, a future neo-colony in, uh, in Asia, because I think that presence, you know, has profound impacts in terms of how, you know, if the U S looks at, you know, basically build up of, you know, Chinese military. Right. I always think, I always think it's crazy. Like when people, like when people go nuts about, you know, China, like, you know, doing naval exercises in like the South China sea. Can you imagine if I can, China was doing and like, but like, cause we're there, right? Can you imagine what our response would be if, you know, China was doing naval exercises in the fucking Gulf of Mexico? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, I know that's not the same thing here, but I think it's it, like that parallel, you know what I mean? There's parallels in terms of like, this is the, or this is the origin of us being, having such a foothold in that region. And in terms of why we feel that it's ours in a lot of ways. You know that that lake of that American lake. That's yeah. That's a crazy. That's a crazy way to a crazy way of putting it. The way they they frame that. But you know what I mean. Yeah. So that's all I got, Steve. You got anything else? 
No, today was our first uh, hungover podcast. So <laughs> yeah, the first day we're not uh, having a beer with it. But uh, all right, well that's uh, that's the Philippines. Not sure what we're gonna do next, but um, stay tuned. Yeah, thank you. Thanks.